0: Hello and welcome to the History Film Club I'm Alex I'm a historian and screenwriter And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television Now the History Film Club is a club for people who really, really love history, film and television uh, All manner of period drama, period comedy, period fantasy even Although some people take against that Today we have a very exciting applicant for the club May I introduce Farah de Boivola so I'm really pleased Alex that we've got
1: Farrah visiting the History Film Club today. Farah is a historian of the English speaking world from the Middle Ages and so he's just one of those people who just knows about everything really all history but his most recent book The Origins of Sex is a really kind of brilliant and beautifully written story of how attitudes to sex were transformed after 1600 he's held lots of prestigious academic chairs and so I'm very excited that we might be able to offer him a chair with us at the History Film Club which will be the <laughs> best chair I'm sure that Farrah has ever encountered so welcome it, Farrah. It,
2: thank you thank you I, I, I really I'm a little bit nervous because as you say this is the pinnacle of my Academic um, aspirations. <laughs> I was looking
1: at your book again recently, for The Origins of Sex, in a film related context, I have to say, because uh-huh. I was running a little history seminar for a group of intimacy directors who are the people who are responsible <laughs> these days for doing intimacy scenes <laughs> in film and television. And we were having an interesting discussion about the history of sex and how people have sex and things. And I said, you know what, you really need to look at this book. And I was waving your book around on Zoom. To be their go-to Bible uh, oh, for all the questions high. that they had. Did about, you say also about? Did,
2: did, did you say it's a very affordable Penguin paperback? <laughs> oh
1: yes, and I said in many
2: different <laughs> languages, it's been
1: translated <laughs> Good. into many okay. different <laughs> languages in many editions. I said all of those things, yeah. Um, yeah. but also I just wanted to check with you that my so my kind of key point for the seminar for them to take away was that they can be confident that people had sex in lots of different ways in the past <laughs> with lots of different people, but actually often with more clothes on than we like yes. to imagine. Is that is that fair? I think
2: I think clothes on is the key for the eighteenth century, anyway. Okay. Uh, yes, but also then, then it, then it then it balances out because, of course, people don't have underwear as we think of it. Mm. Um. So no pants. Uh, uh, so clothes, but no pants. That's. The, I mean, I very important. to, to Remember. It. Yes.
0: This yes. this ties into a major actual period drama gripe of mine, which is yes, people having sex naked in history. I was like, not before central heating. It'd be absolutely freezing, <laughs> especially in a big
2: stone castle. <laughs> Definitely want to keep the piss on. That's, that, and, that, and the flip side of that is my own current kind of Netflix annoyance, which is not a prurient one, but just a realistic one, which is Americans on Netflix in rom-coms never seem to have sex except fully clothed. Right? They, <laughs> they, they dive in it. It's the most passionate kind of ever experience. And they've got these, you know, completely new t-shirts and uh, long johns and this kind of stuff anyway it's not believable
0: (laughs) it's very prudish of them (laughs) yeah exactly but let's bring you into a kind of more broad discussion of history and film than just this oh we can get back to sex I mean I'm fine with that Um, you know we were thinking about I mean how is it when you sort of cover all these areas of history and so on do you find watching historical
2: film quite difficult because there's so much to trip you up you know I read I read a thing yesterday uh interview with Jerry Seinfeld the comedian and he said he finds it hard to watch shows on tv because he's trying to relax and enjoy the show but all he can see is the scripts and the rewrites and the people (laughs) acting uh and I feel a bit like that watching people trying to recreate film on film history that I that I know about I mean there's most history I don't know about so if it's you know medieval China or or the lives of others. I was thinking is a great historical film about um, Eastern Germany. I, you know, I'm not so expert on these areas. I enjoy that very much. But if it's something I do know about, it's really, really hard to relax and not to just be constantly uh, on the lookout or, or seeing things <laughs> that, that are not quite right. So I don't actually enjoy a lot of historical film. Heresy. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I, you said this is a show for people who enjoy history. <laughs> film and television. I enjoy history. I also enjoy film and also enjoy television, but <laughs> I spend the whole day in the 16th and 17th and 18th and 19th century. When I go home, I really usually just want to switch off and, and live mm. in the 21st century. So, I, you know, I, if it's got Paul Rudd in it or Cameron Diaz or it's just, and I'm also just exhausted and have small children, I just want to uh, want to be in the present and, and, uh, and curl up with a rom-com. So, <laughs> uh, my, my historical film uh, love is quite niche I think that's okay that's um, okay as long as it yeah. exists yeah I mean I like film what I, what I really love I do, I, do, I do love film in all sorts of ways and what I love in historical film is playing with history rather than trying for accuracy just trying to make a believable fictional world which is a completely different thing from accuracy as far as I'm concerned so, so you know the great recent 18th century film The Favourite which mm. had, must have had amazing consultants on it because it, it really has the flavor of the, <laughs> of the period. Um, but it, it's not accurate in any kind of real sense. It's it's just a, a terrific fiction that happens to be set in the early 18th century. Or Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I think is another great mm. example of, you know, it's really, it's it's, it's about history, but it's, it's not really about history in a in a documentary se- sense. It's about our, our notions of what the history of that period is like and playing with those and just hilariously funny
0: i think a lot of historians actually tend to prefer historical comedy because they don't think there's so much chance of it being taken seriously um but they can enjoy all the in-jokes you know so exactly so it's a bit of fun for us (laughs) without the kind of (laughs) creeping terror of it being wrong
2: (laughs) oh no look he's wearing the wrong kind of you know, overgarment, or mm. that's not the wig that they had in 1723. Also, anything swashbuckling—I'll uh, give a shout out to the Three Musketeers, or anything with Oliver Reed and a sword. Ah, uh, yes, the uh,
0: the seventies Three Musketeers. The 70, one. yeah,
2: 1973—the best, the yeah, best, and only. I mean, it's an amazing one. cast as well, right?
0: It is like a completely Mike, extraordinary York, cast, and I mean, so Charlton Heston and um, Christopher Lee, Michael Welch, and as, Christopher yeah. Lee.
2: Just, yeah, yeah, just unbeatably good.
0: Um, and a fact I love about that film is that it was originally intended, apparently, uh, as a vehicle for the Beatles. Um, the plan was that they were going to cast <laughs> the four Beatles as the Musketeers uh-huh. and uh, D'Artagnan. Although I don't know who was supposed to be which Musketeer.
2: That's yeah. a that's a little parlour game that everyone can play at home. Well, I, I am thinking, you know, it's not um, outlandish. I mean, that those haircuts would have come from the early 17th century. <laughs> So, I haven't actually seen that, the um,
1: Three Musketeers. I know, terrible. Another confession on the History Film Club. I need to go back and visit it. But I had a quick look at it um, online before speaking to you. And I realised that they didn't do what they do in the more recent Musketeers versions, which is they don't do the crime of tough guy leather costumes in 1973 (laughs) because that's something you see from like the 1980s onwards is the musketeers are always in leather as though they've just got off their motorbikes and about to get on their horses and it's all like this kind of you know macho leather costuming and in your version your favorite one it's all this like slashed sleeves it's the kind of you know yeah. shirt, romantic hero I mean, <laughs> model of costuming. That's what you
2: want if you're, if you're waving a foil around, not leather. <laughs>
1: exactly. I, mean, <laughs> I know, it just looks yeah. difficult Imagine to navigate. Imagine the chafing. <laughs> it's <laughs> very <laughs> sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so and I warmed to it immediately in terms of it's visual aesthetics. I thought, oh, phew. No, yeah. no
0: leather and studs yeah. going on. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what is that? I mean, who started that leather and studs? I think it might be Robin of Sherwood. On It's Robin um,
1: Hood. It is. And it's Robin Hood, but no. I think
0: even before then, I think Robin of Sherwood on British TV had leather and studs. And then then they never looked back. I yeah. think what,
2: there's a, some kind of subtext there that we should all be getting, but, you know, like semen stains on the children's television show and...
0: Oh yes. Yes, we should probably oh, cool. explain the context of that. <laughs> Captain Punkwash, <a> Children's <laughs> T V show. Famously we're supposed to have characters called Seaman Stones and Master Bates aboard this yeah. pirate ship, but um, I think it might be a myth. It's a myth, okay.
2: <laughs> Something that I just don't want to Google, because you don't want to be disabused. No. Bad idea anyway, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I you gave the context
1: her. for that, Alex. I was like, oh <laughs> another version of the Musketeers. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I think this I thought this was for a very knowledgeable audience. You know, <laughs> is about so so of film
1: I need to catch up, catch up.
0: <laughs> very sophisticated okay. audience. But yeah, of course, I mean films like this, of course, are, are pure fun and fantasy. I mean, you know, very much in the sort of Errol
2: Flynn tradition. Um, exactly. Of, and um, you the, know, p- anything anything that, that has the words prisoner and Zender in it. Or Scarlet and Pimpernel. I'll
0: watch
2: that. But
1: there's one film isn't that the 18th century that everyone always cites as the kind of the biggest, most successful, most influential period drama, and that's Barry Lyndon, the um, Kubrick, you know, film. Yeah, um, you must have seen that, Farah. Surely, you've seen do you know Barry
2: what? When Linden. I when I was uh, when I was uh, a teenager and at school in Holland, it was very kind of relaxed school as all Dutch schools must be. And uh, one day our, our Dutch teacher said to us, uh, you know, tomorrow, uh, don't come to school because there's a one day only showing of Barry Lyndon at the cinema. And um, you should just go and see it because it's a life changing experience and forget about school for a day. So we all went to see it. And it was indeed amazing and mind blowing. And, and in those days, you still had in, in Amsterdam, these amazing 19th century cinemas with giant giant screens and kind of all all the flummery, of um of of old-fashioned film watching and i saw it on this giant screen and i think it is one of my perfect kinds of historical film because it is a film about an 18th century adventurer based on a 19th century novel made in the middle of the 20th century so even if it's (laughs) trying to be accurate it's, it's just a kind of palimpsest of ideas and play with um, with fiction and with history. It's also just so beautiful. I mean, like 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 all of Kubrick, it's it's just its own magical world that he just conjures up for one film only. Um, but if you've seen it, you'll know.
1: and I think it's also one of those films that has kind of gone down in film history for being incredibly difficult to make and taking five times longer than anyone thought. And this kind of time of filmmaking where people got to spend a year just doing you know a couple of (laughs) scenes and that was fine or however long long things took so it's kind of got this oh just this reputation hasn't it for being this uh, you know huge moment in film but I'm just impressed that your school let you take the day off we should have all gone to school in. Holland, I think. <laughs> or we could campaign now for the History Film Club to be like, okay, everyone's allowed a film day. We'll go and watch yeah. Netflix. For well, it was
2: also the thing about this. Also, right, it was it was only showing for like three days, and that doesn't exist anymore. No, and no. I, I'm not sure I'd want to watch it now. I watch everything on my laptop on my sofa. I'm not sure that you could watch Barry Lyndon happily on your laptop. No, it um, wouldn't be the
0: same, would it? At
2: and all. it's three hours long as well. I'm not sure I'd have the patience anymore sitting on my sofa. Uh, with the distractions that, you know, watching something on a laptop involves.
0: I mean, I always thought people were being quite pretentious. I mean, I love going to the cinema, but I thought people were being quite pretentious when they say, oh, no, but you've got to sit on the big screen. I think, oh, I'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> and then a few years ago, um, Lawrence for Arabia was showing in its original kind of massive print, and there's only about oh, yeah. two cinemas that can show it. And I went along to the. Curzon Mayfair, completely out of my normal remit to go and see this thing, and it was so extraordinary that I literally went back and saw it again the next day. Oh, It was so gorgeous, even though that's about four hours long. I mean, it goes on and on, yes. but it was just spectacular. So yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think I think I think, I think, two, it's, I think it's
2: actually two things. It's, it's it's the it's the screen and the the size of it that's very uh, clearly very important, but it's also being forced to sit in the dark without distractions mm. for as long as it takes right we don't have that at home when you when you've just kind of curled up and you've got your laptop open and you can just pause it whenever you want to get more ice cream and stuff like that it, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't give you the same immersion
1: so apart from rom-coms what else works for you on a computer screen then Farrah, if you're watching film now um is there anything I... that's been set in the past that that will will hold your attention
2: uh well, I watched all of Mad Men on a computer screen and just mm. adored it. Mm. It's not about the history for me anyway and 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 when i when I look at it, I see all the ways in which it's it epitomizes a kind of staged historical reconstruction where what you do is you you hit all the right uh notes you hit the you you have the music of the period, you have the clothes, you have the cars. But if you want to pick at it there's no there's no crowd scene, there's no outdoors, you know it's very very stagey um so despite that I love it and that's all about the things that aren't historical just the psychological drama of the of that great series Mm. Um,
0: although it is it is very rooted in the period in terms of its social history and everything and the kind of attitudes and worlds it looks at I mean
2: it's just not absolutely
0: events but (laughs) I know
2: but because because I know a little bit about that that also feels to me like it's I, I'm just being lectured a little bit and very and quite crudely as well <laughs> yes. So, so great. <laughs> despite that I enjoy it um, but, you know, but the, Mad Men was the, always
1: cited as well as being one of the ones that got everything really precise in terms of all of its settings and context and props and I wonder if that's the time when we start to see this kind of nitpicking about period dramas having the wrong kind of telephone or something and Mad Men was always cited as the one that worked really hard to get all of those details right um yeah so i wonder if mad men has this other moment in terms of how we relate to film and television and and everything that came after that was like oh well they did it in mad men they managed to get it right and look at this one let's get it all wrong <laughs> so, yeah
2: i think i think there um it, it 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 makes a difference that it's a, a television series that has so many episodes because if it's a film you know you've got two hours to get it right but there they had so many so many hours to to, to slip up and mm. and so it was very mm. impressive that they did manage to keep it on on point all the way through and and also because of course the, the times are changing right so everyone's interested to see how 1963 is evoked and then 1967 is evoked and, and, and that's part of the charm of it and and, and the, the challenge of spotting something that doesn't work but
0: yeah <laughs> come on who's left their iphone in their pocket <laughs> exactly Someone, I mean, someone's I have to... gonna John Draper yeah. he's again
2: <laughs>
1: exactly yeah. but we could call yeah. Farah the John Draper of academia there's a certain kind of suave sophistication <gasps> that's very Don kind Draper. okay I'll and take that actually, can your we stop Oxford now just... has, you know, <laughs> some of the the furniture and aesthetic of your academic offices Farah has a certain kind of you know mad Men vibe I think didn't, wouldn't you say mm-hmm.
2: You're too kind. I think it's just the cocktail cabinet, really. (laughs) But
0: (laughs) (laughs) best bit. That's fine.
2: Yeah,
0: but also to kind of you know to drag you back onto your current academic research, you know, which may not be where you want to be. But we have had a lot of controversy lately. I mean, talking about these kind of big budget shows that are are sort of in what they call the you know the near past. Um, There's -hmm. obviously been a huge controversy recently about this show, The Crown, that talks about the royal family and lots of discussion about whether the kind of historical licence it takes is really acceptable. And I'm very interested in this from the point of view of you studying the history of free speech. Mm -hmm. Um, Is, you know, these questions about now, I mean, I think most people probably wouldn't really want to see films and drama censored, but in terms of a responsibility
2: about the past,
0: you know, where do the kind of boundaries stand on this for you with, you know, with historians and filmmakers?
2: Well, that's a, it's a really important question and and a, and a really interesting question because film, of course, does have immense power. It probably has more power than any other kind of medium through which the past is communicated. Partly because it reaches more people, and partly because of the kind of connection that that it um, creates emotionally uh, to the past and those that that view it. So, so I think that that's a given. But then, if we're not talking about things that are documentary, I mean, even documentary clearly documentary film is a telling it's a fiction it's a shaping of the past in a way that a book is but but that leaving that aside because there you have certain responsibilities if it's a fiction i think you have no real responsibilities because it's a fiction uh in the same way that if you're writing a book about the past that is a novel you should be allowed to play with it it's about the, as i said before it's about the believability of the world you create not about the accuracy of that world beyond that i mean if you're talking about past history that still resonates very powerfully in the present, especially past history that is deeply, deeply uncomfortable and problematic, say slavery or the Holocaust, if you're going to make a fiction about that, you clearly have to be very careful about what you're doing and responsible to some degree in the sense that you don't want to be misleading people about what really happened. As far as the royal family is concerned, I have no qualms whatsoever about people making it all up. <laughs> That's completely different. It's not about the Holocaust. It's not about slavery. Right. I couldn't care less about the royal family, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's not like they're you know some downtrodden minority who have no power at all. So, so th- there, I think, and certainly, you know, for this whoever this person is, Dowden, I'm, I'm happy to be away from the United Kingdom now, not to have to know about these politicians. Uh, he, he should just. You, know, you should just go away and govern, and uh, I'm not pontificate <laughs> about fiction on Netflix.
0: For any listeners unaware, it's Oliver Dowden, the cultural secretary, who said that uh, Netflix should put up a disclaimer before the Crown saying that it was fiction. Which, personally, I think if it's got actors. Oh, in I love it, it but well, I it's do, not also real. Described I do love as
1: drama. I mean, it's not. It's <laughs> described as a drama. They already have a language of fiction. <laughs> yeah.
2: I do love the idea that all the presumably it's a he's a conservative minister, so he's worried about all conservative voters being misled into thinking this is really the home life of our dear Queen and mm. and uh and that's really her on the screen and so on. Yeah, maybe wow. maybe he has a lower opinion of conservative voters than he should do.
0: <laughs> well, quite yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. let's hope
2: some of them can tell fact from yeah. fiction.
0: I'm sure it'll all be so I tested. Think, I think the-
2: the key is believability. You know, that's what you're aiming for if you're making a fiction, but that doesn't mean historically accurate.
0: Farrah, you also mentioned to us uh, when we were talking before that you have a favourite historical film joke. So I was going to
2: give you the yeah. opportunity to tell it now. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, because I, I can only carry one joke around in my head at a time, and at the moment it happens to be this joke, and I'm dying to tell it to everyone before <laughs> I forget about it. And uh, it's uh, it's about Dick Van Dyke, the great American actor, who's, I think, now 95. And he's had a great career, and I'm going to smuggle him in as a historical film thing, because, of course, he starred in many great films about the English past, like Mary Poppins and mm-hmm. uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, but what's not generally known is that Dick Van Dyke is not his real name. And uh, for a long time, in fact, he struggled even to get into movies. And he only broke through after his agent told him that actually his name was the problem. It made him impossible to hire. And so, uh, he, at that point, he changed it to Dick Van Dyke, and then his career really took off, and and, and the rest is history, as we say. Hmm. But it was uh, it was only that, that that made his career possible. I'm sorry, you need to say what was was his his original
0: name? (laughs) (laughs) No, I was waiting to see whether there was just a pregnant pause. Hold on, let me say it again without us all laughing over it.
2: So, what was his real name? Penis Van Lesbian. Oh, very good. <laughs> um, well, we don't we don't Thank usually you. ask
1: our guests to tell a joke, but that one's been very welcome. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but but Farah, we do ask our, the members of the History Film Club to nominate something uh, that we can include in our, our film library. Something that they really love—a film or television series that has some connection to history. Um, is there something that you'd like to, us to include in our library?
2: Yes, um, and you may have it already because it's so great that probably everyone loved it, but. Uh, it's Aguirre the Wrath of God the 1972 film by Werner Herzog uh, I don't know if you've seen it it's one of his early uh, films and it's the first film I think that he made with Klaus Kinski who plays the, the lead
0: I haven't seen it, I do love some of his other ones so
2: I love this film because it is a crazy movie about crazy people in a crazy situation and if you know Klaus Kinski and if you know Werner Hetzel, you know they're both also crazy. And that's partly how they make <laughs> such great art. <laughs> so in 1970, well, it comes out in 1972. so I presume it around about 1970, this uh, huge crew to make this film uh, went on location on the Amazon River. It's a movie about a 16th century Spanish expedition, partly fictional, partly slightly based on history, but they're trying to find El Dorado. And they're marching through the jungle and they come to a point where it's very difficult to continue uh, on foot. And a small party uh, of a few dozen people um, is sent out ahead on raft down the river to find a way through and to find the gold that they're seeking. And so you get this uh, group of 40 or so uh, 16th century conquistadors, missionaries, a few noble women, uh, enslaved Indians. On rafts, wooden rafts, wearing armor in 16th-century costume, the women are carried in these palakins and it, the, the the Indians who are enslaved are uh, wearing Amazonian uh, outfits. It, it's completely crazy, and and it's filmed, as I said, on location. So they so basically are uh, in the middle of the jungle, this extraordinary troop of people trying to get down the river, which is very fierce and very difficult. Um, and it's it's a movie based in the past. And part of the craziness is that you see these people in heavy armour on a on a wooden raft trying to <laughs> trying to, to 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 get through the jungle. But essentially the movie is about gradual disintegration of this group of people, the psychological strain, the suspicions, the fights that break out between them, the mutinies, and one by one, over the course of the movie, they all die or kill each other or disappear in the jungle or are captured by um, the tribes of the of the Amazon. So it's a very, very dark movie and it gets darker and darker and darker and more and more gripping. Uh, it's, it's slow, it's oppressive, it's incredibly tense um, and very beautiful and, and completely compelling, I think. And Klaus Kinski, who plays the title role, is this evil genius conquistador who slowly manipulates everyone to gain the leadership of the group uh, and then slow, equally slowly in the second half, goes mad and uh, is left all alone, drifting on a raft down the Amazon, trying to find <laughs> El Dorado.
1: <laughs> Sounds perfect. I can see That's that in screening at the History Film Club.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Um, and it's also how I think of the 16th century in general. Just completely
0: crazy and <laughs> full, of, full of death. <laughs> Sounds but great. About right. It's good <laughs> to see people in heavy armor as well, because these days usually when they film, they make armor out of kind of light plastic, so that chainmails. Oh. Because otherwise, it's so heavy to wear. So it means that all the battle scenes in real life would have been really slow. But obviously, oh. for movie audiences now, that doesn't work. It's got to go fast, yeah. so everyone has yeah. to wear plastic. <laughs> I
1: could just They're now imagine like all these fight these scenes where it was going really slowly, like oh. exactly slow mo. Oh, wait, wait, let me just pick up my sword. Yeah, it's <laughs> take about yes.
0: fifteen minutes. Hang on there okay.
2: yeah. with one of those huge two-handed swords <laughs> that you can yes. oh, yeah,
0: I it must yeah. have just taken forever. I mean, so you know, yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't work. Modern audiences, you know, who are used to the Fast and the Furious, it, it, that just doesn't 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 <laughs> sit with them at all. Yeah. So now my favorite of his um films i haven't i haven't seen Aguirre the Wrath of god which i now of course must um is uh, the enigma of kaspar hauser which i just think is absolutely fantastic oh. it's about the same era that hurts yes. somebody and that's it, it's an incredibly i mean it's sort of partially based on a historical story but again it does moves it away from that into a much broader sort of analysis of having severe mental illness in that time in history which of course wasn't um a very pleasant thing wasn't yeah. a good time to have it. Basically, <laughs> a rather unsympathetic society. But it's an incredibly brilliant and moving film, um, and a fantastic evocation. So, so yeah, he's Van uh, Herzog is. It can be an honorary member, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hurrah! <laughs> um, but we also do like to ask for some, you know, for people to. Um, nominate something to ban from the club because of course this is a very exclusive club and we don't want uh, anything around that's going to you know upset our esteemed members so is there something that you could nominate for us to ban whether that's a film or tv production that you particularly don't like or or perhaps just a trope or or Mm. something that annoys you on screen do you know
2: what this is quite hard because because quite a lot of things annoy me on screen <laughs> <laughs> but I decided that 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 I had to go for Nazis speaking English. ah, that really annoys me, and uh if they're supposed to be speaking i I know I said people should play with history, and there 's no accuracy uh necessary, but um actually, as I said before, I grew up in Holland and in Holland uh, in the 1980s, there really is only one thing that happened in history, and that was the second world war uh. It makes the English seem quite relaxed to the attitude to, to the war <laughs> uh, by comparison. Uh, the Dutch are really obsessed by it and, and they hated Germans with a, with a vengeance even decades and decades after the war in a way that, again, we think as English people, we understand what it is not to like Germans, but that's nothing compared to people who were occupied and the rest mm. of it. So, so uh, I want my Nazis to be really evil. And if they start speaking English in a German accent, I really can't believe that, Um, except in the Marathon Man, which you you may have seen with uh, Mm. uh, Dustin Hoffman and uh, Laurence Olivier, where he's he's actually uh, in disguise as an as an English speaking dentist there. I think that's the one exception. If you're a Nazi in disguise. uh, as an English-speaking dentist you're allowed to speak English. spoiler alert <laughs> exactly <laughs> but apart from that please yeah. can you not the subtitle it? it's so
1: easy I think we can ban English-speaking Nazis fairly yeah. happily from the club
0: <laughs> there's there's a sort of compromise position isn't there which some films do I think they do this in, um, in Indiana Jones actually in the uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark where basically i mean obviously if the nazis are speaking to british people they can speak english or to american people then they can speak english but um they otherwise the nazis are given lines in german but they're pretty much just aktung schnell that's all that's <laughs> shouted in the background yeah. schnell schnell aktung yeah. and then yeah.
2: you know then the stunt goes i, I, there you I go. didn't mean to denigrate the you know linguistic abilities of uh, a fascist from the 1930s they probably did speak English <laughs> to English people yes. but not to each other
0: yeah yeah there we go I think that's fine you're good with that Hannah Thank aren't you? you we're gonna yes. ban that yeah, yeah I think we can ban that we can
1: and Nazis then... have to speak German when you're actually able to visit us at the History Film Club, when we can all get together again, uh, we, would, we like to buy our History Film Club members a, a drink at the bar. Um, we have all drinks, all of history to pick from. Um, anything that, that you like. Is there a particular drink that we could get for you when you are able to come and visit us?
2: Ooh, I would like a gin and tonic made from 18th century gin.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> Very classy choice. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Well, we'll get the bartender to dust off one of the really old bottles. Yeah, yeah. My we'll gosh. try not to
1: reenact Gin Lane, though. I think it could become a bit. <laughs> a bit <laughs> when did
0: they start drinking it with tonic? In the eighteenth century, would they have had, would have had it neat, I, or?
2: I don't think they. I would. They would have had it neat. Yes. Yeah. With, uh, it's Dutch gin, right? You know, for, mm, Yes. They, well, we are all um, about the mixing adopted.
1: of the past and present, so we can definitely put some tonic in. Yeah. In that's yours. Right. That's how you'd like it served. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much. It's been so lovely to talk to you and um oh, and introduce uh, you to the History
0: Film Club. Yes, and I think, Hannah, on that note, um, of course, we have to actually rule on the admission. I think even though... Farah's quite sniffy about um, historical dramas that approach actual history. I think your enthusiasm for film and TV and history even if possibly separately means Farah would be delighted to welcome you to the History Film Club
2: Oh I'm thrilled Thank you so much I look forward to it very much Thank you so much for having me Thank
0: you, it's been a great pleasure And, and thank you for listening This has been the History Film Club
2: You've been listening to the History Film Club with Alex von Tunselmann, Anna Gregg and Farah de Boivola. It was produced by Nat Tapley for Gloomy Productions.